If you want to turn with me to Romans chapter 1, pick up where we left off a couple weeks back. Appreciate Luke standing in for me last week. It was kind of last minute, but uh, I appreciate him doing that. I'll do my best not to start coughing, but I may have to. (laughs) Romans chapter 1, I'm just going to read two verses, beginning of verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, or for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. Father, we do ask your blessings on the preaching of your word, that it would honor you and your son and edify the church, and just help us to hear what uh, you say to us today. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, we're approaching now the theme of the book of Romans, these two verses. In fact, you could say these are, within these verses, is the theme of all apostolic preaching. Certainly of Paul himself, of his preaching, these two verses sum up well um, what he believes. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones says that, in fact, here Paul states his purpose of all of his preaching in verse 16, then gives an exposition of it in verse 17, and begins to work it out in verses 18 and following. So that, basically, verse 16 is Paul's understanding of why he preaches and what he preaches. Verse 17 is an exegesis or an explanation of it, And then maybe the entire rest of the book of Romans is fleshing that out. And that may be a great way to consider the book of Romans. I believe that every other theme from here on out, every doctrine, every application, will be based on these two verses and the statements contained in them. I think it's probably true that all of his writings in the New Testament are applications of these two verses, if you think about it, or working them out in detail. Sometimes people will say, well, you know, you, you folks focus too much on one aspect of Paul's theology. But that's because I believe all of his teaching and theology is founded upon what he thinks to be and what he believes to be the gospel of God's righteousness, which is what we've talked about so far in these first few verses. I believe it's right to say that all of Paul's teaching, what he believes about the Jewish people, what he believes about the Gentile people, what he believes about the barbarians, what he believes about the nature of the church, marriage and the home and church leadership, what he believes about the end of the age, everything is founded on what he says in these two verses. So I think we do well to pay attention. Begin in verse 16. He starts with this word for, and I think maybe I pointed this out in the times past to pay attention, at least in this first chapter, how many times he uses the word for. So he'll make a statement and say for or because this. Here's a statement, because this. And that's kind of the way you can read that word for. He's obviously explaining something that has come before, which he said previously he wanted to come to Rome, but has so far been hindered from doing so. 
And he said, I wanted to come to Rome that I might reap a harvest among you as well as the rest of the Gentiles. Because you remember, he said, I am a debtor or I am under obligation to Greeks and to barbarians. In other words, to the Greeks and the non, or the Gentiles and the non-Gentiles, to the wise and the foolish. In other words, he's saying, I'm under obligation to preach to every kind of human I can find to preach to. Whether it's Jew, Gentile, whether it's barbarians, in one place he says scathing or free or imprisoned, no matter what kind of human he finds, wise or foolish, he says, I'm under obligation to preach to them. And not only am I under obligation, he says, I am eager to do so. And then he says, and I'm eager to preach to you also who are in Rome. This gospel, which he has said is the gospel of God. This gospel, which God promised through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. This gospel of God, which concerns his son, specifically Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was raised from the dead. And so he gets to verse 15 and says, and I'm, able, I'm eager to preach that gospel to you even in Rome. For, verse 16, or because I'm not ashamed of this gospel. Now, this is a very interesting phrase, and I was going to just go on past it to get to verse 17, but I thought it's probably pretty important because I'm not sure how much we understand this idea of being ashamed or not ashamed of the gospel because we don't live in a time where there's very much reason to be ashamed in our culture when it comes to Christ. <laughs> in fact, it seems like everybody's a Christian, right? Of some kind. So there's not a lot to be ashamed of even though, and I'll come back to this later, the world is trying to shame us in some places and cause us to be quiet and silent. But for the most part, I'm not sure we understand exactly what he is saying here. I'm ready to bring this gospel of God's Son and preach it to every person that I can find. And I'll even bring it to Rome. I'll bring it back home to where I'm from, to my people. Now, probably this is based solely or at least in the beginning on Mark chapter 8 in one place where Jesus says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, I, or of him, the Son of Man, will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and his, with his holy angels. You're probably familiar with that passage. And I'm sure that Paul is basing this, I'm not ashamed first and foremost, on Jesus' words because it was there in that context of Mark 8 that Jesus was saying, whoever will follow me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man, right? To gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul. And the reason I believe Jesus was saying that and why Paul brings this to the forefront now in the beginning of the Roman gospel or the Roman letter about the gospel is that there's this connection between loving this world and loving ourselves because there's a connection between loving this world and wanting self-rule. I want to be in control of my own destiny. I want to be God in my life. I want to be in charge. And Jesus knew that there is a sense of shame in the heart of humanity to give over rule. That's pretty much what Jesus is saying. If you're going to follow me, you've got to stop following yourself, number one. We can't both be God here. You can't be in charge and me in charge. 
So that's what he means by take up your cross. Because if you're ashamed of me, now sometimes we use this as a way to encourage people to get up and profess their faith, but Jesus was making a very serious thing, a statement here. If you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. Why? Because if you're ashamed of me before man, that means you're still in charge. You're still in you're still God in your life. The world would say, along with Satan in the garden, surely God has not said, fill in the blank. In other words, what Satan was saying to Adam and Eve, and the world still says to us, and our human heart says, surely God is not in control of you. Certainly our American heart, right? Nobody tells us what to do. We're in charge. But Jesus says to lose your life for the sake of Christ and the gospel is to save that life. The world will say to you, you're a weakling if you give up rule in your life. <clears throat> Besides that, look at what you Christians say you're following. A failure. One who died as a common criminal on a cross. Your Savior is a dead Jewish guy who was crucified along with sinners. <clears throat> and so Paul says to the barbarians and the wise and the unwise, I preach this gospel... And I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not ashamed of it, even though it's landed me in jail. <clears throat> even though it's caused me to be ridiculed. Even though people have laughed at me and my gospel. They laughed at the Lord, too. They ridiculed him. They spat on him, smacked him around, plucked his beard, pointed at him, taunted him. He saved others. Can he not save himself? <clears throat> Yet we read that Jesus counted it a joy for the cross that was set before him and endured it, despising the shame. And so, to the world, I hold on to something that I should be ashamed of. But God in Hebrews chapter 11 says, or we read that God is not ashamed to be called their God. In fact, he's prepared a city for them, the people of faith. That's what Jesus was talking about. I won't be ashamed of you if you're not ashamed of me because my Father's preparing a place for his people. And so Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. <clears throat> this shame maybe is the fact that anything good could come <clears throat> from a dead Messiah. Of course, we know he's not dead, right? But you might remember that Paul also to the Corinthians said this, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and folly to the Gentiles. Now why would he say that? Well, I think it's in the same context of this idea of being ashamed. Because remember, it's about self-rule. The world will say you ought to be ashamed if you're willing just to lay down everything and let somebody else be in charge. And Paul says to the Jews, it's a stumbling block, this cross of Jesus. Why? Because it trips them up in their self-righteousness, right? Specifically the Pharisees. The Pharisees would say, deny myself? Why would I do that? I'm busy saving myself. I'm not going to deny the very thing that's going to get me to God. And so Jesus, with his silly self-denying cross was a stumbling block for the Jews 
<clears throat> of course, they wanted a different kind of Messiah. They thought a political guy was coming to rescue them and set their nation back to what they thought was right, all of that. But I think at the end of the day, they hated Jesus because he cut away at their self-rule, their self-righteousness, their self-religion. <clears throat> and then he says to the Greek or to the wise, this seems like foolish because they're too wise to fall for such simple things. Knowledge and worldly wisdom is the way to higher living for the wise of the world and life eternal if they want it. Intelligence, wisdom, self-denying is foolish. You should be ashamed for following after such fables and fairy tales like this Jesus of Nazareth. You see, in Paul's day, it was a very common thing and a real thing for people to feel this weight of shame where everybody else is around them <clears throat> saving themselves and here these people are saying I can't save myself I'm just trusting in this Jesus to save me what he's done I mean a lot of ways people would laugh at us now if you said that too loudly if you start saying that much people will really come up against it Nobody believes, nobody wants to believe it's all by grace, right? We've got to have some part in it. And there's a sense of shame. And so Paul would say, I'm not ashamed of this gospel. And he's about to explain why that matters. And we won't necessarily get all the way into that today, but some of the way. Because this is a gospel of grace, not a gospel of works. Everybody else is busily trying to get to God. And you're trusting God only through faith. Paul would write to Timothy, you remember, and say, Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel and the power of God. Even those like Timothy had a tendency to be ashamed. Peter writing to all of those who are in exile that he wrote to, to the Christians, he says, If anyone suffers as a Christian, <clears throat> let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name, that name of Christ. I don't want us to skip over this too rapidly, this idea of not being ashamed of the gospel. Because again, I think it's easy for us to say, well, that, that's probably not something we have to deal with. But again, if we go back to the practical side, <clears throat> does our culture want us to be silent? Does our culture want us to be ashamed? When's the last time you try to talk to somebody about how old the earth is and use the Bible, you'll get laughed at. Well, you're a fool you don't believe in evolution in the millions of years. Even my little boy, he says, this, even in his grade in school, people look at him like he's crazy if he says six to 10,000 years. Well, you've got to be a fool. And there's a, there's a tendency to silence you in the shame. <clears throat> don't even mention that in the public square. What kind of goofball are you? Or if you talk about abortion and you dare bring up life and the protection of life and that life in the womb matters. In most public arenas, people, if they're not angry at you, they scoff at you for dare believing. Anything opposite of what the world would say for you to believe. Or the area of human sexuality. 
That's a place where the world wants the church to, to be shamefully silent. Things like race. We talked a few Wednesday nights ago about even going to church during COVID. Do you know there was this sense of shame? Oh, I can't believe you're doing that. Do you not love people? Who are you? You don't care. You don't love people the way Jesus. Jesus wasn't went to church during COVID. So crazy stuff that you hear. There was this idea of you need to be over there. You need to be ashamed of yourself, ashamed of this gospel, because you got to look out for the higher good. What about the exclusivity of Christ? <clears throat> it's okay in this world to be religious. It's just not okay to be exclusive and say there's no way to God but Christ. You can even be a Christian as long as you're accepting of everything else and saying, well, I guess everybody's going to get there some way. But when you start proclaiming that, no, there's only one way to God, and it's through Christ. Now, we don't hold any kind of rights to that and say, unless you come through our church, you can't go to heaven. But if, unless you come through Christ, you're not going to go to heaven. And we can make that statement... <clears throat> But there's a lot of ways, and you see a lot of churches and a lot of preachers and a lot of book writers who over the years have been shoved and pushed into shame and silence over the exclusivity of Christ because it's not popular. So maybe we don't understand it completely, but I think there are a lot of ways, even though for the most part it's okay and cool sometimes to be a Christian, it just depends on what kind of Christianity it is that you're preaching right maybe that helps us think a little more clearly in what these terms that Paul is saying here it's really a big deal for him to say I am not ashamed I will not be silenced I will not be marginalized I will not keep my religion to myself in fact to go back to what he said I am indebted to preach it everywhere I go I can't be silent To the wise and the unwise, to those like me, the Jews, and to those who are not like me, the Gentiles. I'm not ashamed of this gospel. It's not a Jewish gospel. Now he says in verse 16, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile, <clears throat> which is probably just a reference to the fact that God used the, the Jews in a very special way to bring the Messiah. And they were the first ones. They received the law, the angels, the prophets. But then if you read, even through the Old Testament prophets, God chose them to be a light to the Gentiles. That's the only reason God chose the Jews, to bring the Messiah to the world. And that the purpose of election might stand. And it does. It highlights for us that God chooses for his purposes. But he says, I'm not ashamed of this gospel because this is the gospel of God concerning his son who was declared to be the son of God through birthright, which means he is the right layer to the throne of David. And declared to be such by the Holy Spirit, by the power of the resurrection, he says, in verse 4. And I ask you this, is there a greater power known in earth than raising from the dead? What kind of power can that be? What kind of power overcomes death? The greatest kind of power. Explosive power. In fact, in verse 4, the word that is used there, transliterated, is dunamis. When Jesus was resurrected, he was declared to be the Son of God in power, in dunamis power, which means all power. 
you can probably hear that's where we get our word dynamite, right? That kind of explosiveness. And so later, Paul comes down here in verse 16. He says, hey, the same kind of power that was evident in the resurrection of Jesus, that's the same kind of power unto God to salvation. Like dynamite. What kind of power does the gospel have? The same kind of power that raised Jesus from the dead. And so Paul says, I'll tell you what, I will not be ashamed of what I will not hide out in the dark over and what I will not sit silently and keep to myself is something that's so powerful as to get the dead up out of the tomb for after three days. And he says, I have that entrusted to me. I will not be ashamed of that power that raised Jesus from the dead because the same power will raise you from spiritual death unto life. That's what Paul knew. Why would he not be ashamed of the gospel? <clears throat> because just like for him... There couldn't be anybody out there so bad that the gospel power could not raise them from the spiritual death that they were in to life. He knew that. Now, he knew that everybody wouldn't be raised, but he knew some would. Because that was some more kind of power. <clears throat> A dynamite, powerful, explosive power that can take a cold stony heart and break it down to tears over sin and by grace cause you to stand before almighty god as though you belong there the gospel of christ has that kind of power explosive power the likes which have never been seen or known to man it can change liars to truth tellers drunks to sober men adulterers to faithful covenant keepers the sexually immoral to pure Lovers of purity. So along with Paul, we cannot be ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Everyone. People don't have to attain anything. They don't have to be in a different place in life. They don't have to get all their ducks in a row. They don't have to fix themselves, purchase anything. No, the gospel of God and his son is the power of God and the salvation to everyone who believes. And what does it require from them? Belief. The thing you can't purchase. Is it not amazing all the things that men have added to this beautiful gospel message only detracts from it? It's already the power of God and the salvation. The same power that got Jesus about the grave will raise you from spiritual death to life and give you life everlasting. You don't need to add anything to that. What needs to be added to that? Nothing. Because that is the gospel. It's not part of God's plan. It's not a piece to the puzzle. It's not a part of a mixture. The gospel by itself is the power of God and the salvation. And so you see why else men have a tendency to be ashamed of it? Because it is the power alone. God plus nothing. We go right back to where we started. If you're ashamed of me before men, I'll be ashamed of you before my Father. Why? Because you're not willing to deny yourself and take up the cross and follow me. Speaking of things to be ashamed of, I sort of mentioned this, but the doctrines of grace. You start speaking the doctrines of grace and people say, you need to get over there and be quiet. You talk too much about that. 
your gospel plus nothing, your God plus nothing doctrine. Men have to do something. Men have to play a part. There has to be some kind of synergistic act of God plus man doing something. But that's just it. It's nothing. God has done it all. The power of God and salvation is the gospel. We can't add to it. Many people would have us be ashamed of teaching people that no human ability figures into salvation. <coughs> but no human ability can because men, humans, do not have the dunamis that's required to raise them from the dead. People don't go around raising themselves. It takes the power of God. And Paul's going to explain this better in verse 17. But this verse 16 is huge. I'm going to come there and I'm going to preach the gospel there like I preached everywhere else. I don't care what people are going to say. It may cost me my life. It may cost me imprisonment. But I'm not ashamed of it. Why? Because it's the power of God and salvation. It's the same power that got Jesus up out of the grave. And it's the same power that will raise us and cause us to one day live beyond the grave. I don't think I could say it any better than Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 9 says it. And you were dead in trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the, call, the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now is at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him at the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one can boast. That's the power of God and salvation. It's a beautiful thing. Nowhere in there did man do anything. God did it. And that's the gospel. So Paul was not ashamed of it. And I know you're not. God has already brought you to faith. But it's something to think about. Hmm. Let's pray and then we'll get ready for the supper. Father, we thank you for your word. We do thank you for the gospel. And we do trust and believe that it is the power of God and the salvation. To everyone that believes... And so help us to teach it that way, preach it that way, share it with others that way. Believing that nobody is beyond the reach of the gospel. That the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead can raise any man, any woman, any child from the death of their sin and the grave that their sin put them into and raise them up to new life. Give them faith to believe. And so we just thank you for that. Thank you that you have put that into us who believe. And we recognize more and more, every time we hear it, we recognize that it was not of our own doing. It was not of any work that we could boast about. It wasn't because of the work of our parents. It wasn't because of the work of some great preacher or some great church. It's the work of God. And we thank you for that. And we just pray that we're able to reflect on that more as we celebrate the supper. We know that 
you will meet with your people here. We know that your presence is a very real thing. We take the bread and see in it the body of Jesus that was broken for us and wounded and bruised for our transgressions that we might be given this faith to believe and his blood shed for our sin that we might be brought to you and the enmity erased and we thank you for that we celebrate it now in Jesus name Amen